So now we are going to turn to the last part of our program. Um, and I will introduce Dr. Mike Sag, a longtime friend who needs no introduction, but it's my job to give him one anyway. So uh, Mike is a professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, where he is also an associate dean for global health. He's published extensively on HIV basic science, clinical trials, and many other aspects of HIV care, and was a founder of the 1917 Clinic at UAB, which is a renowned outpatient clinic where people with HIV receive comprehensive care. And most importantly, Mike knows the lyrics to every Broadway show that so uh, cases with Dr. Sag are always fun. So, Mike, uh, you want to take it away and introduce Sure. Our- uh, thanks. And, and joining uh, us today on the panel, in addition to Dr. Thompson, uh, will be Dr. Paul Sachs from Massachusetts General Hospital and Professor of Medicine there, and Dr. John Kurtha, who's a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University, uh, and uh, if Dr. Volberding or Dr. Friedland want to join in, that's, that's great. Um, we're going to uh, activate the cameras and go from there. Um, this is the usual um, kind of rapid run-through of cases. Dr. Flexner's back. He's going to join us on the panel. Um, we're going we're gonna to go through these cases. Some of them, uh, what I did this time was I figured this is two days that we've had together uh, from last Wednesday to this Wednesday, and I'm, I tried to focus the cases so we could recap in a way what we've learned and incorporate some of the data that you've seen uh, over this ISUSA uh, New York Symposium um, into into your practice. So, and also, uh, Melanie, I decided to expand my horizons. I can certainly do Broadway, but I usually do. But I, I decided just kind of to do uh, some popular music because a lot of people's eyes glazed over because they didn't know the Broadway song. Sometimes they were obscure. So here we go. Uh, let me share my screen, and we'll get started. All right, so this is uh, where we'll start, and boom. So these are my disclosures, mostly just two research grants from those entities. Um, The learning objectives are to start, when to start initial therapy, um, to ask the questions about uh, some weight gain, uh, what to do about it. Uh, We're going to talk about... uh, uh, Pregnancy, aging, and virologic failure. Okay, so let me bring my folks back here and start with the usual question. What's the initial regimen that I should use? So this is a 48-year-old guy who presents with newly diagnosed HIV. He's asymptomatic. HIV RNA is 280,000, CD4 counts 65. the other labs are normal. This is not an immediate start, so you have those labs back. Um, and uh, is HBV immune, so you don't have to worry about that. Wild-type virus, normal renal functions, okay to start therapy, ready to go. So I'll let you ponder these uh, a little bit. We have a lot of options here. I'm going to start the music. Uh, if you can guess what this is before the lyrics start, I'm impressed. Uh, let's go.
right. Uh, let's see what kind of answers we got. All right. Anybody get the music? It's kind of straightforward. Any of the panelists? Bruce Springsteen. Yes, indeed. Off his first album, Greetings from Asbury Park. So here we go. Um, most people went with Big Tegavir, and that's what we're seeing in practice a lot. Um, maybe I'll turn first to Dr. Kurtha. What would you have done in this case? Yeah, I agree. I think that would have been my first choice as well. I mean, he had a high viral load, um, so you want something effective. He has normal, you know, renal function, and um, just as our kind of one of the first go-to regimens, I would have selected the same thing. Okay. Let's see, Dr. Sachs. You're unmuted. Yeah. There I would have uh, voted for the same thing uh, with the, you know, the, even though this patient would have been eligible for the Gemini study, the fact that the CD4 cell count was under 200 would have made me avoid dolotegravir lamivudine because uh, numerically there were more uh, treatment unsuccesses <laughs> In in that study, and, and and you know, if you later want to switch to dolutegravir, that's fine. But starting with bactegravir makes the most sense to me. Okay, um, Dr. Flexner, thoughts? I, I would have said the same thing. And and again, I, I have no particular um, allegiance to bactegravir over dolutegravir, except that the co formulation is so much more convenient for first patients as a starting regimen. Um, I thought you were going to ask me whether if this patient walked in and asked for an injectable regimen, would you give it to him? Yeah, would you? I would not. Uh, at least at this point in time, uh, first of all, um, it would violate the uh, package insert to start a treatment-naive patient on Cabinuva, um, Cabotegravir plus Rilpivirine in- intramuscular. And I frankly just think it's a better policy to get the patient fully suppressed on a daily oral regimen for at least several months before even considering an injectable regimen. And I, I, and I think right now that's, that's our practice situation. I think it's going to be a while before we're truly starting treatment naive people on injectable regimens without first getting them suppressed on daily oral therapy. Okay. Um, I'm going to go circle around from uh, Paul, Jerry, and then to Melanie. Um, any of you all would do anything different? Well, uh, Mike, this is Paul. I, I, I don't, I don't mind the idea of two pills instead of one. You know, the TAF FTC Dolutegavir would be would be a great um, combination. On the other hand, I, I think we all see patients that have trouble in the pharmacy getting things filled or refilled, um, and the possibility of not getting, uh, you know, either the Dolutegavir or the FTC uh, TAF would make that a, a definitely a second choice i think i, I would i would go uh with the what, what everyone else is saying yeah you know uh, mike it reminds me of that that study that you did of uh tdf ftc efavirenz like where it suddenly took over all the other regimens yeah it was referring to a cid article i don't know 2008 and we had this bar. It's a green bar of, of the relative use. And it's this green bar just kept getting bigger and bigger. We called it the Godzilla study. It was like the, the green monster that sort of took over the world. Um, um, so, uh, Melanie, uh, thoughts? Well, you know, I think uh, most of the important points have been made. But I would just say, along with Paul, you know, two pills are not the worst option. Um 
in the reality of our lives right now, uh, insurance companies are really beginning to put the squeeze on a lot of patients. And I've, I've been hearing this from people lately. Um, and I also want to point out that um, TAF FTC is great, but so is TDF FTC. Mm-hmm. And so for somebody with normal renal function who doesn't have uh, any other comorbidities going on, if you're going to go with a two-drug regimen, you could use TDF-FTC, and there is a generic for TDF-FTC that, that could save money in some circumstances. It doesn't always. Generic drugs aren't always cheap. Uh, or, uh, but, um, but, you know, in general, for a patient starting therapy the first time, I like the ease of giving them a single tablet. And also the big Tegravir tablet is very small, and many people like that. Right. And um, Dr. Sachs, I think uh, you had some paper on that, right, with uh, mostly being with boosters. You want to tell us about that real quick? You're you're talking about the renal function issue with boosters. Yeah, renal function with TDF, yeah. Yeah, so so basically it's, it's, you know, probably the most systematic look at this was Andrew Hill's summary and he's updated it and basically essentially we know that when you give ritonavir or cobacistat with tdf the plasma exposures and charlie's going to correct me on this if i get it wrong is like 25 to 35 percent increased is that about right charlie yeah so that that means that you're exposed to more of the potentially nephrotoxic potential of the drug and uh, so that's probably why it contributes to the the discontinuations that are more common. So that actually was true when you compared Elvitegravir cobacistat FTC TDF to Elvitegravir cobacistat FTC TAF, and probably that's the reason. Yeah, exactly. Um, Can I be a devil's advocate for a moment? Suppose this is a very knowledgeable patient who's been reading the literature and knows about um, Calvitegravir rapivirine and does not like to take pills. Would you still delay for X number of months before starting? Yeah, perhaps. We're going to, that's a great question and a perfect setup for a case that's going to follow. So <laughs> <laughs> bookmark and, and uh, we'll get to that, I promise. Um, the recommend, there's update just recently to the HHS guidelines that are more or less superimposable with uh, the ISUSA guidelines as well as uh, what's happening in Europe. And it's mostly what we've just been talking about. It's an issue of one pill versus <coughs> two for the most part. And um, and we'll get to some issues with the uh, Dalyotegravir. We heard some commentary about higher viral load, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. Um, one of the things that I think Charlie Flexner was talking about was this lead-in. This is a very small study of looking at oral lead-in versus um, uh, direct to inject, and this was one of the studies that I think Sue Swindles um, presented to us last week. I just wanted to bring it back up as a as a, a redo, just to kind of point out that there's it seemed to work, um, but numbers are small, and uh, notice that the difference was mostly because the oral lead-in group was missing virologic data on about uh, a little over 5%, so the details matter. Bottom line is it seemed to work, but I think it's going to be in select populations, and I don't think it's quite ready for prime time yet. Um, so, uh, and, and also, Mike, Mike, just to point out that this study was in people who were eligible for flare, which means they had to first suppress on an oral regimen for six months. That's right. So that's so, still consistent with the FDA package insert, except without the oral lead-in. Yes. For Cavitegra here. 
Yeah, good, great point. Sorry, uh, I should have said that. Um, so uh, before we go on, I, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but we're going to turn to our moderator, Dr. Thompson. Uh, for folks, if you want to put questions into the Q&A as we go, I'll turn to Dr. Thompson before we switch subjects. Do you see anything there, uh, Melanie, you want to bring up? Uh, yeah. So there's a question about cost. Um, are there any cost issues to be aware of as we move to using newer INSTEs and FDC preparations? All right. That's a softball over the plate for Dr. Sachs. Um, you're talking about the, the cost issues now. Yes. Over the, about so, the different so, drugs. You know, I got to say the cost issues, it depends on how you define cost. Uh, if it's to the patient, most places, the various recommended regimens in the IASUSA guidelines, which I'm partial to, sorry, uh, are cost about the same because the payers have made um, deals with the various uh, pharmaceutical companies, and they're all coming in roughly similar. If you look at the average co- wholesale cost, however, dolutegravir lamivudine is the cheapest of the recommended regimens for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of where it stands. And it's the the thing I think we need to remember critically for patients, it's their out-of-pocket costs that influence adherence the most. So we need to be very attendant to that particular metric almost more than anything else. Because if you start bumping up their copays for whatever reason, they are more likely to stop taking their treatment. So do you step, Paul, do you, um, do you ask patients routinely about their copays? Cause oh, they, they, they mention it. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, because they it, definitely. Can, it can vary quite a bit depending oh, on their plan. Yeah. Right. And, and that was your point earlier, uh, Paul Wolberding, that the uh, one versus two. And uh, what's fascinating, uh, Melanie, coming back to your question, uh, is that when you look at that list, it sort of went by as quickly, but there's a single tablet formulation of a lower dose of Favarin's, which has less toxicity but roughly equal efficacy with TDF and 3TC, um, that by the average wholesale price will ultimately get down to become very uh, inexpensive relative to the average wholesale price of other things. But as, as Paul Sachs mentioned, um, it, it's, it's, uh, it may not be in a marketplace that, that cares it's a, yeah. about that. It's a black box. Mm. And maybe one day we'll fix that. Um, I'm not sure it'll be in our lifetime, but, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I hope we do at some point personally. Um, Okay, so we'll we'll keep moving this way, and I'll pause for questions as we go, as we can squeeze them in and then wrap up with some questions at the end if we have time. So moving on to the next question, um, this is a new uh, recommendation that came out in the ISUSA guidelines about is there any additional test you might order? So uh, this is an obscure song. Let's see if everybody gets it. Okay, let's see what we got. All right, most people are picking integrase genotype. Um, by the way, that anybody know who that was? It's really obscure. It was David Bromberg. Um, it, people who grew up in Philly will remember that. Um, so uh, 
so let's take this on. Um, uh, anybody ordering an, in, an integrase inhibitor genotype? Melanie? Well, not right now unless there is really a suspicion of transmitted resistance. And it's uh, not recommended in general as part of the baseline genotyping. Of course, we want to get a genotype for um, the other drugs, uh, NRTIs and PIs and, uh, and so on. But NST resistance appears to be very low in terms of transmitted resistance. So right now, it's not recommended and it does add cost. Um, and so I don't do that um, in general. Right. And uh, an HLA-B5701 is something I used to get all the time. It's just that I it's not you can get it now or you might delay it until you're getting to a point where you are going to consider using a bacvir some people like to get it ahead of time um and toxo antibody is something we used to order all the time i mean i know paul volberting you guys started that i think back in san francisco general way back when um do you all order that now anymore is that sort of passe i'm not at the general anymore but uh, no i don't i don't think it's ordered very often yeah right so the new recommendation is for ordering a serum cryptococcal antigen for people who have a viral, who have a CD4 count that's less than uh, 100. And the rationale is that um, it's a very inexpensive test. And if it's positive, you can catch people before they develop meningitis. Your course, if it's positive, going to do an LP. A lot of times that'll be negative, at least hopefully. And then you can just um, start fluconazole therapy uh, and prevent the meningitis from happening, uh, and that's one of the new recommendations um, that has uh, come up uh, from the ISUSA uh, on the last uh, on the last iteration of the guidelines. I would argue a histoantigen, not a terrible idea. You want to get urine, uh, certainly their febrile or whatever. But if somebody's uh, practicing in Costa Rica, or if you're in a high incident histo belt like. Uh, uh, Indianapolis, maybe where I grew up in Kentucky and Louisville, or near a river, um, that, that might be something worth considering if you're seeing a lot of cases, just something to think of. Any other comments from the group? I would probably get both the toxoantibody and the cryptoantigen. Okay. And your reason for the toxoantibody is just is with that CD4 count? You know, uh, it's it's he's got advanced disease. Uh, let's say some point in the next few weeks he develops neurologic symptoms and a you know it'll be handy to have that result i i agree it's not even though we order it a lot of times in people with high cd4s and it's not necessary at this point probably would order it yeah this guy had a cd4 count below 100 i think think this has a lot to do with the prevalence of these opportunistic infections in different places so it shouldn't be a national recommendation necessarily i can think of places where an igra would be actually a much more important test to get to uh to provide, and it's not mentioned. I'm not sure if that's uh, if that's added separately. But you know, tuberculosis is a critically important disease to consider, and certainly yeah. in the U.S. or if it's an immigrant population. That's true. So yeah, if you're dealing, yeah, in, in where I live, um, I haven't seen a case of TB and HIV in a long time, actually. But certainly in other areas of the country, uh, that that should be considered. Um, Melanie, are there any other questions uh, before we move on? Um, yeah, so uh, one person says, are you checking this on those with CD4 less than 100 that are in care but not virologically suppressed? 
mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Yeah, um, I think you're more likely to find active disease, perhaps, and that's when you can really have the best intervention. The, the take-home point is that this would be on the initial evaluation, so by definition, they would not be suppressed. Right, and then uh, one person wants to point out, Jerry, that IGRA can be falsely negative with a low CD4 count. Want to comment on that? Oh, well, that's true. It, it uh, does like the, like the PPD, yes, but it's still, um, you lose some sensitivity, but it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be valuable if it was positive. It would right. not be valuable, yes. So you can wait and to repeat it again when the CD4 count comes up, but if it's a if it's a person who's an immigrant from a high prevalence area, most of the TB in the U.S. now is imported, and um, I think uh, that 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 should be part of the routine uh, workup for that kind of a person. Okay, well, uh, I've tried to. Uh, I think uh, Raj uh, Gandhi did a nice job with new drugs, and I've tried to figure out how to incorporate that. So we're going to have a Back to the Future moment um, three years from now. Great Scott. Uh, see how we do. Uh, same guy, basically. Um, so you already know the story. And uh, the question is, certain things might be available for us that are new. And uh, I'll let you ponder this while we listen to this song. Job done. So what happens if we win? I go back to France and bring freedom to my people if I'm given the chance. Okay, um, that was kind of a gimme. Let's see what we <laughs> Monsieur <laughs> Hamilton. Okay, that, that was from 1776, right, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> right, Charlie. <laughs> okay, so um, let's leave up, uh, Stephanie. If we could leave up the poll for a little bit, so we can have. A little bit of discussion about this. So most people are hanging with um, this the uh, standard regimen we had selected before, and um, we already talked about uh, this a little bit, and we talked a little bit about injection right away, and maybe we'll have data. Let's talk about this notion of Islatrovir with uh, linacaprovir, and we create an implant. And I've designed this question specifically for Dr. Flexner um, to tell us about what the future may be, Doc Brown? So um, there, I think, will be a, a, an Islatrovir implant that will uh, last for at least 12 months after insertion. Um, that is uh, producing anti-HIV concentrations in the plasma in all recipients for at least one year or at, at concentrations that result in intracellular triphosphate that protects against HIV or that suppresses HIV replication. Um, Linacapavir has not yet been developed or studied as an implant. It's a once every six months subcutaneous injection. And so the question is whether um, Islatrovir and linacapavir could be co-formulated somehow in an implant that could be given once every 12 months. My personal opinion is that linacapavir is not sufficiently potent 
for the kind of implant that Islatravir is, uh, uh, is being used for. So keep in mind that lenacapavir is 927 milligrams every six months. Islatravir is 64 milligrams every 12 months as an implant. So the idea that you could create a lenacapavir implant with 1,850 milligrams for a year we're we're just not there yet. What if they what if they co- I mean I know Merck and uh, Gilead are uh, kind of working together on this. What if they created a Delorean implant? Would that be possible? Would that be helpful? I'm thinking Back to the Future. In other words, you know. So is it possible that in three years we could end up with a something we can just begin to imagine now? So I I think the answer is yes. It's certainly within the realm of possibility. The, my question is, do we have a partner drug for Islatravir in an implant yet? And then the other issue is, if you had a patient who wanted maintenance therapy that did not involve pills, or perhaps even wanted to start therapy that did not involve pills, would it be so bad to get an Islatravir implant once every 12 months and get a lenacapavir injection once every six months? Yeah. And I would say that might still be a preferable regimen for a lot of people, over taking a pill every day or even taking a pill once a month, once a week or once a month. Yeah. So that's, I just wanted to have a little fun with this. And uh, anybody want to comment on the other options? Uh, we talked a little bit about cabotegravir. Um, what about uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies? I was trying to see what we might pair that up with. That's, that was really uh, a bit of a, of a stretch, but uh, anybody want to comment on that? Well, there is a study um, going on looking at um, BNAB with loronlimab, um, or actually, I'm sorry, with albuvertide, which is a, a Chinese fusion inhibitor. It doesn't have the same kind of uh, injection site reactions as T20, but, but similar in that way. Um, but uh, currently, uh, the... BNAB is being given by IV infusion, but, you know, I know that they are looking at different formulations. So, you know, there may be an opportunity for a sub-Q treatment every other week, um, you know, in the future. That That is a feasible kind of thing to think about. Um, you know, one, once we're giving treatment once yearly, we'll say, well, why should we give treatment every other week? But, uh, but you know, the truth is when you... You know, sometimes you do want to stop these treatments. Now, the good thing with an implant is that you can take it out. But uh, so it's not that far away as a possibility. Paul Sachs, you look pensive. <laughs> well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I feel like I always bring up the, I'm always the person reigning on the BNAB parade. I, I don't really believe that they have much promise as therapy. Um I'm not even sure they have much promise as prevention, but they are scientifically interesting, but all the studies have been disappointing. So I'll just leave right. it right there. Paul? Because, yeah. Paul, I, I was just going to say that I, I love that we're having this discussion. I mean, I think, you know, a couple of years ago, we probably would not have been so optimistic that we were going to have uh, some very potent, interesting uh, drugs with very uh, interesting pharmacology. And I think it's, I think it's a new world that uh, we're going to have to, learn how to live with. So it's, I love it. Yep. Yeah, I agree. I think I had, so to, to Paul Sachs's point, uh, we have on one hand proof of concept from COVID 
with the Regeneron Lilly mono, uh, broadly or somewhat neutralizing antibody, not broadly, but neutralizing antibodies that we're finding miraculous outcomes in high-risk people that have kept them out of the hospital. Uh, but that's an acute disease uh, for which you knock out and you're done and you walk away. Um, people are complaining already, at least in our clinic, the administrators, about the notion of even just giving an injection every other month and logistically working that out. So if it's every other week, it's going to have to be something people are going to have to be taught how to do at home for it to even have feasibility, in my opinion, right? They can't come traipsing to the clinic every other every other week, I don't think. Um, Melanie, any questions from the, from the audience on this? Uh, well, yeah, a couple of questions, not specifically about these combinations, but, but one person points out that the two-pill regimens um, are often not ideal for young people, um, and it turns out that the experience is that some young people will stop taking one of the pills if they feel that uh, the pill's too big or it upsets their stomach, so they sometimes end up just taking one of their two-pill regimens. Um, we've already talked about how getting out of sync with your medicine is an issue, but um, this person says uh, that she is having to write require authorizations for um, the Tegravir fixed dose combination and that one pill is important for youth. Yeah. So a good comment from that perspective. Yeah, that's a good, good point. Um, just going to move on a little bit here to keep us on time. Um, there are the different drugs uh, uh, that uh, Raj went over. So uh, should I simplify an initial regimen, and if so, how? Um, we got the same guy. I'm just trying to make it easy on us. And then four months ago, started a two-drug regimen. Uh, could have just as well started, started the single drug. Um, now uh, comes back and the viral load is less than 20 and 270 and says, you know, I might want to take something a little simpler, maybe uh, either not a one tablet or maybe some other alternative thing. So you're going to consider that with the person. And um, so at this point, you're going to either keep the regimen the same or change to one of these other ones. Let's see what the music is this time. I want to know. <laughs> uh, we're going to flee out on that one and uh, see what <laughs> answer we got. Um, all right. So now, Dr. Flexner, you you sort of poo-pooed the notion of, uh, of uh, changing to uh, cabotegravir before. What about in this setting? So um, that wasn't a very popular choice, by the way, amongst our amongst our audience. Uh, only eight people thought that that would be a good thing to do, and um, I, I think it is entirely dependent on the motivation of the patient uh, and um, you know understanding why they want to switch, and also making it clear that for cabotegravir, real pivoting intramuscularly. They've got to be able to come to the clinic every eight weeks, and you've got to be able to have a way to track them down if they don't. Um, and so th this, to me, this is the the elephant in the room about switching people to Cabanuva that nobody really wants to talk about. What do you do when people don't show up for their injections? And right now, those injections have to be given in the clinic. 
You yeah. can't send somebody send somebody well, to a pharmacy to get Cabinuva injections. Yeah, and and the name Cabinuva got me off on a whole tangent of blame it on the Cabinuva. <laughs> uh, sorry about that, John. John Kurtha, um, what would you do here? So I think um, you know I think if we knew a little bit more about kind of what their uh, trajectory outside of the CD4 and the viral load had been. I mean, I think there's a role for switching them to DTG plus 3TC for metabolic reasons and perhaps for insulin resistance reasons. Um, but we don't, if we don't know anything about that just yet, I mean, there is some, you know, there is some like reassurance, I guess, that would come along with just switching them, for example, to, um, you know, a single fixed dose combination with TAF. So that would probably be a, a Bictarvi regimen. You know, we're um, seeing a lot of interest, I think, in the intramuscular injections, but I would agree. I think that, you know, a key thing is there's um, a lot more ability to reach people, for example, by mail prescriptions on oral regimens if they're not 100% likely to come back into the clinic. And we've seen, for example, during COVID, we've had individuals who haven't been in for 12 months, and they're happy to do video voice calls, but that would have obviously been a very bad time for them to have started. It's hard hard to give Cabinuva via um, uh, telemedicine. It is. I'm going to move to some of the data. Paul, let me turn to you uh, just for commentary on this, but uh, as you look at this uh, slide that uh, was presented, I think, by Joe Aaron last week, What's your read of the success of uh, two-drug dalutegravir after starting? Well, this this really is uh, initial therapy and not switch therapy, and and it's very overall very reassuring. And uh, you know, there's you have to look, you have to really squint to see the problems. There's one patient in the dolutegravir lamivudine arm who developed uh, resistance way way out uh, during a period of poor adherence, and if you wanted to sort of say potentially there's more risk of resistance with dolotegavirlamivudine and poorly adherent patients, potentially, um, because you have a, a much larger denominator for three-drug therapy and with no dolotegavir resistance um, in clinical trials. So I, I I think overall it's reassuring, but this is not as relevant as the Tango study, which I thought maybe you were going to show. Well, yeah, it was just more of uh, yeah. what I pulled off of. And the Tango, the Tango study shows that for suppressed patients on a TAF-based <laughs> regimen, with no history of resistance, switching to dolotegavirlamivudine is is perfectly safe. Yeah, and then these are the data that were presented uh, at Croy on um, the injectable. Uh, we're looking at four weeks versus eight weeks. Uh, Charlie Flexner, you want to comment on the the, the four week eight four week eight work and the pharmacologic tail and your concern about that, if any. So, so first of all, my concern about four weeks versus eight weeks is there were more confirmed virologic failures on the eight-week arm than on the four-week arm, but because the numbers were so small, it did not reach statistical significance. And so I would like to see more data, perhaps in a different patient population, on every eight-week cabotegravirral pivarine versus every four weeks before saying everybody ought to go over switch over to every eight weeks. And of course, that regimen is not yet FDA approved. Uh, the assumption is it will be within the next yeah. 12 months, but we don't know that for sure. Um, the other issue, as you point out, uh, Mike, is the tail. And <clears throat> what do you do for people who decide to stop cabotegravir and rolpivirine injectables or who don't show up for their visits? Um, and the FDA package insert says uh, send people home with a, um, a seven-day supply of orals, but they don't exactly say what you're going to do after seven days beyond the missed uh, injection visit. So I, I think, again, it, it 
the the devil of the this regimen is going to be uh, in the details and and the details here is going to be implementation and how do we actually make this work in the clinic right and while there weren't many failures there was um among the people who had a failing regimen um there was some resistance uh that was emerging um to the uh to the integrase inhibitors which which boxes us in any comments or thoughts quickly on that <laughs> a lot really, of nodding um, and shrugging yes could I bring up uh, another devil in the details uh, for Charlie? Yeah. You know, I thought about this when uh, you were presenting earlier. We're now in a situation where we don't have to worry about the GI tract for some of the drug interactions when people are getting injectable drugs. But if they have to go back onto oral um, cabotegravir repilverine for a bridge, then you know, that's something people are going to have to be looking out for because we could certainly have drug interactions with them. Yeah. You, you, you could. I mean, I, I think there's not a lot of examples of clinically significant drug-drug interactions with these two drugs that are that exist for the oral but not for the intramuscular. But, but you're right, Melanie. I, I think the, 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 the concept is that the drug interaction profile is going to be different for oral regimens versus intramuscular regimens, and it's yet one more thing we're going to have to think about um, when we switch people off one to the other. Well, like repivorine with PPIs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, I'm, I'm going to need to move on because we've got a little bit more territory to cover and time is ticking. Um, so how do we manage um, this the weight gain that we see commonly? We're, we're sort of getting used to it, but what do we do? So this is a, a patient who uh, started on uh, – Big FTC TAF and uh, did well. Uh, viral loads come down, viral CD4 counts gone up, but she's gained a weight that she's not happy about. So just to, to start off, um, what do we do? Uh, so let's go ahead and as you ponder, I will play another uh, song here. <laughs> this is too easy. <laughs> it's easy for the folks with no gray hair. Grateful that house is a block from my house. It's just back there. <laughs> that was so you, it was targeted to you, Paul. <laughs> exactly. Um, so most people would keep her on this. Uh, John, you have been one of the early pioneers in studying the weight gain, and I think we've all been convinced that it's really real. Uh, what do you do about it? So, uh, yeah, I don't think that's particularly uh, well-known, but hopefully it'll be sorted out, you know, in the next few years if there are good switch options. Um, so she had, you know, I think um, she had a higher CD4 cell count, a lower viral load, but but I didn't notice if she was, what her ethnicity was. Um, but, I didn't uh, say. Okay, so being what female. Would like, though, what would you like it to be? Well, so if she was African heritage or Hispanic, that's going to be higher risk of weight gain right. there too. But this is a little bit unusual because she has well over a 10% uh, weight gain mm-hmm. despite having a relatively high CD4 count and a relatively low viral load when she started, mm-hmm. which makes her a little bit um, atypical. There's, I think a key question with the weight gain is for the most part, we're still counseling people with diet and exercise changes. But I think a key question is whether the weight gain is actually accompanied by any sort of metabolic changes. So I would assume that they're, you know, measuring fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, um, sort of following that along, and then also looking at fasting lipid uh, 
parameters. So among the switch regimens that I saw in here, um, you know, the idea that what's available, I guess, would be switching to sort of an A-triplet, which would be much older, a Darunavir plus a TDF. But the two things that aren't on here are DTG-3TC, yeah. which from Tango did not induce weight loss per se at 48 weeks, but did show a statistically significant improvement in HOMA and also in triglycerides, um, which are kind of two of the main things that we look at in terms of, of future diabetes risk. And then another thing that I didn't see on here that really uh, hopefully will be answered by upcoming studies is what to do with switching to newer um, NNRTIs. So for example, Duravarine or, or Rilpivirine. And there will be some data I think for Duravarine from the upcoming ACTG 5391 study, um, but from drive shift, we did see that individuals who were switched to Duravarine containing regimens with TDF um, had a less of a slope of weight gain if they came off an NSTE as opposed to coming off an NNRTI versus a PI, which does give us some indication that there may be a signal there. I think the problem being, though, that drive shift was primarily a drug, was, was prim- primarily a maintenance of viral suppression study. So mm-hmm. it sort of took all comers on the front end. And unfortunately, the vast majority of people who were in drive shift who switched to Duravarine TDF on, from an INSTE were actually on Genvoya. So they were on a boosted um, L-Vitegravir, which is shown in, um, yeah, in uh, uh, observational and, and randomized studies. Uh, prospective studies to be associated with less weight gain than than uh, bigtegravir or dolutegravir, and then additionally they were co-formulated with TAF, which a lot of the people coming in on the NNRTIs and PIs weren't. So that kind of muddied the drive shift picture when it comes to weight. Um, so for now, I would agree. I think that you know the key thing would probably be to um, you know to 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 counsel um, dietary changes and uh, weight loss. But if there are metabolic changes, I would have added DTG 3TC to this list as a possibility, okay. not for weight loss, but for improved health. Do we have a signal yet about Islatravir and weight gain? Do we, have we seen anything on that? I think that um, I'm not familiar with too much on weight gain, right, for Islatravir. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but my understanding from just what I've heard through the, the scuttlebutt is that it performs pretty similar to an NNRTI. Um, now, one question with Duravarine um, is, is that the weight gain was actually more than seen with the Favarins. Yes. And I wonder if maybe the same will be seen with Islatravir, because there is this question as to whether or not a Favarins actually suppresses appetite. So what we're considering to be our ideal baseline, which is really sort of what we just have historically as a comparison, actually may have been retarding weight. And so we're, you know, what we're seeing and calling this gain with newer agents really is, is lacks a proper comparator. Yeah. I could just uh, comment quickly about the pregnancy data in the Impact 2010 study, which was just, just published. Uh, that the women we want women to gain weight during pregnancy, and the ones who started TDF-FTC-efavirenz gained the least amount of weight, and it was unhealthy. I mean, it was okay. associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes. Right. Whereas the people who went on TAF-FTC-dolutegravir, who gained the most weight, closest to what was recommended, actually had the best pregnancy outcomes. So. That would support that, in fact, some of the weight loss or weight signal from these various comparisons is the toxicity of TDF-FTC efavirenz, which was kind of hinted at in some of the older studies, which showed more lipoatrophy in efavirenz-based treatments. So, right. I, think, I think the advanced no. study really confirmed that, really showed that as well, because yeah. the efavirenz slow metabolizers. Yeah. Who, yes. Melanie, um, did you get any questions the lowest that you want to bring forward from the audience? You're muted. Uh, may I ask how many, how, 
What was her weight gain? How many pounds did she gain? Was it 30 pounds? Uh, it was 20, 25. Yeah. But it was, it's out of the range. I, I'd use it just to kind of say that that would spark somebody to want to do something different. I think so. Yeah. Melanie, yeah. what do you, what do you have? One of the questions was, how many pounds make a difference? How do you huh. judge? It's up to her in some part. It's a sliding scale. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it might be a very important issue for her. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. It, and that it has to be just, taken very seriously. Right. That's Not just from the metabolic standpoint, but from quality of life. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move on to... Uh, we just got a preview of this from Paul Sachs a little bit. Um, this is a 30 year old woman newly diagnosed and shows up and is eight weeks pregnant, uh, was diagnosed during her screening, uh, first, uh, OB visit and, uh, in pretty good shape HIV wise, 28,650 for CD4, B5701 is negative, wild type virus. Her first pregnancy, she wants to start therapy. Um, while you ponder your options, I will try something different here. Let's see. This is kind of gettable. You're trying to sting us. Okay, um, I think that was made popular before Yes, I Can became a uh, slogan. Uh, let's see what the group goes with here. Um, Melanie, you want to take on this discussion a little bit? What would you do? Uh, well, let's see. The, it looks like the audience went with uh, Dalyatagravir and TDF3TC, um, and uh looks like there was some enthusiasm for uh, Dalyatagravir, Bacavir, 3TC. Uh, so I, I guess I would just kick off by making a point about Dalyatagravir. You know, we, we have now sort of come full circle with Dalyatagravir in terms of um, uh, pregnancy, particularly for those who want to get pregnant or who may get pregnant. Um, so during the Con the conception period of time, we were worried about neural tube defects because of a study in Botswana that showed a statistically significant increase in neural tube defects on dolutegravir. But it turns out that follow-up from that study has shown that uh, really the, the rate is very, very low for neural tube defects with dolutegravir. Uh, <laughs> At this point, it, uh, the thinking has been that the benefit far outweighs the risk with dolutegravir, and so the perinatal guidelines have now um, made dolutegravir uh, an option for pregnant women. So I think that's just an important take-home point. And, and still, conversation should be had about risk. Right. It, it, I wrote I wrote an editorial for AIDS about uh, a year and a half, two years ago, where uh, these data were just starting to come out, and it reminded me so much of the Afavrin story from 2004 or whatever. It got a D rating, and then it, as more data came in, it became clear that it wasn't so bad, and so the title of the editorial 
uh, pulled from Yogi Berra and said deja vu all over again. Uh, so this is what it feels like to me. Um, Paul Sachs, you mentioned uh, uh, this study, and this is the weight gain you yeah. were referring to. you want to walk us through this real quick? And- yeah, I mean, it's a randomized clinical trial, and I uh, feel like it should be guidelines changing because the safest regimen for women starting pregnancy was dolutegravir plus TAF-FTC. And it might have been hinted at in the results of the PROMISE study earlier where TDF-FTC, when given with lopinavir, actually had some adverse pregnancy outcomes, suggesting maybe that high tenofovir exposures did this. And so now we have uh, uh, a study using a lower dose of tenofovir. And I was surprised by this result, but I was very happy to see it. So I would I would choose I would have chosen on the last poll something else. I would start TAF FTC and Dolutegravir in this case. Yeah, and TAF is now okay. That was some uh time before we had an update on that. No. Yeah. Maybe the guidelines will change soon. Right. Melanie, uh, anything from the audience? Uh well, let me make one more point about those choices and just point out that um we don't want to use a cobicystin boosted regimen in pregnancy because of lower drug levels, lower COBE levels, and lower levels of um, boosted drugs. So that would be something not to use. Um, what about the dolutegravir 3TC? Wouldn't that be? It's not, it's not been tested in pregnancy at all. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, the, the pregnancy guidelines tend to be much more conservative, more conservative than, yeah, the, for sure. than the ART yeah. treatment guidelines. Yeah, they, so. always had... You worry a little bit about penetration um, <laughs> Uh, get across the placenta, maybe. Well, yeah, it, it can, it can, and should be tested. I suspect. So say one more thing about the uh, dolutegravir pregnancy from Botswana, and that is in Botswana, folic acid was not used during pregnancy. That is, it's routinely used in other places, and because of the concern about neural tube defects, so that was one thing that also added to the issue that of a false alarm with dolutegravir. Yeah. Uh, Right. And a couple of questions. What about raltegravir for pregnancy? Yeah. Uh, is anyone seeing intolerance to TDF-FTC in the second trimester, uh, uncontrollable vomiting? Uh, and any comments about PI-based regimens and having the PI dose increased um, later in pregnancy? I think that may go along with what I was speaking about in terms of boosters, but anybody want to respond to those? Well, I think you, I think you did say that. And raltegravir is fine. Uh, it might have to be given twice a day, which can become a problem with adherence. So, I mean, all the, all them are, 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 all those options are okay, but you compare it when you're not using a booster, you've got something that's not only now proven to be pretty safe, but, but, but very effective as, as Paul Sachs was saying. I think we, uh, we're getting a lot of clarity, and it's just fascinating to watch how um, the the roller coaster rolls here. Um, we'll wait for the next uh, sharp turn and see if we can hold on. Um, and, and it is recommended now as of 2020, but it may become even stronger uh, as we were just talking about. So let's go back to uh, this morning's talk, or, or depending on where you are, the first talk of the day today about what do we do with patients as they age. Um, Unfortunately, um, Dr. Erlinson is not with us uh, to really address this. So I might go through this quickly in the interest of time, but a patient is doing well. Um, is there anything you would assess for cognitive function? Uh, let's see how this goes. 
Even if you don't know the name of the song, you know the band. Green Day. Green Day. Yeah, of course. And I just wanted to keep it in the Bay Area. Um, <laughs> this time in Oakland, it. moved across the Bay. It's much like the IS meeting this past summer, going back and forth. Um, okay, so what? This is a, a sort of an interesting question for us. And um, we, what can and should we do? Um, I think uh, Dr. Erlinson made great points today. The question is implementation. And my biggest criticism um, of, of, of a lot of what um, I'll be include myself in this, that I want to do something. It's actually how do you get it done? Um, you got a busy clinic. You got a lot of things you're trying to get done. And now you're going to add extra stuff. And what do you and, do with the results, too? You and, know? and and the gerontologists don't even do this routinely, as far as I know. <laughs> now, maybe Victor Valcor does it out at San Francisco uh, because of his special interest in this, but just it's um, there's lots of things. We talked about polypharmacy frailty. Um, there are uh, different scales we can use. And so is anybody doing this yet? Crickets. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing it. Um, I If I have a longer visit, like an annual visit with people, I try to work something into that. Um, I tend to do more of the short performance uh, based, you know, and uh, sit up, stand up from a chair several times, see how they walk. Right. So, so there, there are two domains, right? There's, there's yeah. a neurocog. And then, uh, as we talked about before, I, um, I'll just ask the audience real quickly as we go through this. I'll try to find another song. This is a quick one. This is testing. Pretty obscure. Um, let's see what the audience said here. Nope, well, most people are not at all. Did anybody know who that was that was getting interfered with with a couple of pages I got? It was uh, starts off with Dreamed I Was an Eskimo. Nobody Still listens not. To, nobody listens to Frank Zappa. Okay. So, um, it's, <laughs> a song called, it's a song called Don't Eat the Yellow Snow. So, um, My, only, yeah. It's, as your. Um, Vicious timekeeper here. I think we have only a few left. And, so, uh, can you go to the last so, one? Right. So what we're doing, um, is kind of pointing out that these are hard to do. Uh, and we talked about these frailty indexes is what they did. Um, we might finish with virologic failure and not, uh, have a case, but basically, uh, there are some new data I just wanted to throw out there. Um, uh, first failures, second failures. We're we're, we're not uh, seeing a whole lot of uh, of, of uh, we're seeing a lot more success. Let's put it that way. And and even in the first failure, um, we're discovering that uh, uh, the resistance uh, is helpful, but you don't have to change the whole regimen of those types of things. Um, we have what a minute 
left. So, Melanie, what I might do is just end the formal presentation and see if there's another question from the audience we can finish with, and then we'll, we'll close out. Uh, yeah, so nothing on that particular um, right. But question. you can go to whatever, you're, a dealer's choice. W which question? Choice. Uh, do we... uh, so uh, what about going back to the issue of the high number of mutations in the cabotegravir relpivirine, Q8 week versus four weeks? Uh, Paul, you want to comment on that perhaps? And, uh, sure, sure. I mean, numerically, there were more of them as uh, Charlie mentioned. Uh, so that makes you think that perhaps if you're going to choose cabropivirine and go with the easier six times a year versus 12 times a year visits, you should use that only in people who've been suppressed a long time. Uh, that is kind of the between the lines interpretation of that numeric difference. Um but you know, right now, uh, we, we, it's, it's actually very, very small, little quiet numbers of people going on this treatment in most centers, including ours. Would, would you want to know what the original viral load was? Doesn't seem to matter. Once you're suppressed, the viral load doesn't matter. It's the duration of suppression that, that matters in a lot of switch studies. And we are in the red zone, which is, in this case, not a good thing. Paul Bolton, your last word. Um, 